greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I want to deal today on the podcast with some issues related to proof texts. Um, many times you will see provisionists like Leighton Flowers and others give Calvinistic proof texts and say that we use these proof texts to prove tulip. And so I was listening to one of his series on Calvinistic proof texts on irresistible grace. And I want to interact with some of his argumentation and some of, some of his exegesis because it's really, really revealing as to the worldview or the assumptions or presuppositions that the provisionists bring to Scripture. Oftentimes you will hear them say things like, take off the Calvinistic lenses. You've got to take off the lenses of divine determinism and just read the text at face value. And what I'm going to say is take off the provisionist lenses, the lenses of libertarian free will, and the fact that God does not have a divine decree, and let's read the scriptures at face value. The issue is, is that everybody brings some sense of lenses or baggage or assumptions or presuppositions to the Bible. We, we can't get away from that because of our background, our upbringing, our church history. And so one of the difficult tasks in exegesis is to let the text speak for itself, to ask the Holy Spirit to truly give us illumination so that we can understand the flow of thought of the, of the argument of the, of the Spirit-inspired authors and not to import particular views or import particular theologies into a text where those things do not show up or are explicit. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at a few of these proof texts, quote-unquote, that he says we use as Calvinists to prove irresistible grace. And then I want to just uh, ask some questions of those um, assumptions or those accusations that he has that we use these as proof texts and let the Scripture speak for itself and let's derive our theology from the text. It may be helpful if you're a new listener or maybe you're new to Calvinism and you're just trying to figure this out. What do we mean by irresistible grace? Sometimes that term is a little bit confusing because it makes it sound like um, that, that you can never resist God's grace. That's not what irresistible grace means. Yes, sinners who are dead in sin and rebellious, you can resist God's grace, you can resist the call, you can, you can resist God all day long. What we're saying in irresistible grace is that for those whom are chosen before the foundation of the world, God will certainly and emphatically bring about the new birth through effectual calling. In other words, for those whom are predestined, they will be called. They will come in faith. God will infalli infallibly regenerate the elect. And so when God decides to save you, it is, in a sense, irresistible because it's a monergistic work of God's power to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
And it is effectual in the sense that when God does it, he does it. It can't be resisted. It can't be stopped. There, there is no libertarian free will where you can choose to accept or reject. When God chooses in a point in time to grant you the gifts of repentance and faith through the new birth, God will effectually and emphatically and irresistibly do it by his sovereign grace alone. So let's look at some of these verses that the provisionists would say we use to prove irresistible grace. Now, I do not necessarily like the term irresistible grace. I, I prefer the term sovereign regeneration or effectual calling um, because I think irresistible grace, yes, it is irresistible when God chooses to do that, but it's sometimes that term can be confusing. So let's look at Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus answered him, and he's talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now just a, an observation from the very beginning. When Jesus says you must be born again, he is not issuing a command for Nicodemus to perform something. In other words, Jesus is not commanding Nicodemus to somehow cause himself to be born again or to do something to be born again. There, there is no condition here that Nicodemus has to meet in order to be born again. As a matter of fact, Jesus' pure argument here is that it's a work of the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, there's a must there. You must be born again. So it's an imperative. It's a divine imperative. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And so it is something that must happen to you. But nowhere in this is it a, a command for Nicodemus to do something. Or do we see a condition in the text that has to be met by Nicodemus in order for God to respond to Nicodemus's faith or whatever and then cause them to be born again? And so what you'll hear the provisionists say is that the argument is not that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. They say, obviously, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. What they will say is the way that you enter the kingdom of heaven is that you believe. You believe so as to enter. And so what they've done is they've imported believing into this passage of Scripture. They'll say the point of contention is not that you have to enter the kingdom of heaven. The point is, is that the way you enter the kingdom of heaven is you believe so as to enter. But notice Jesus' words. He does not give any conditions. He does not say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again and has faith, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit and has faith, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nowhere in this passage of Scripture does Jesus tell Nicodemus he must have faith so as to enter the kingdom of heaven. So 
nowhere in this passage of Scripture is faith the condition for being born again. And so one of the assumptions that's brought to this text from the non-Calvinist is that self-generated, autonomous, libertarian, free will faith comes first, and then as a result of your exercise of faith, then God causes you to be born again. And so in Jesus' discussion here with Nicodemus, the issue is being born again and we know that believing comes later on in John chapter 3 the most famous passage of scripture John 3 16 for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so there is believing but Jesus has set up the argument to show the order what comes before the believing Jesus has spent all this time with Nicodemus talking about the new birth, talking about how it's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, how you can't produce this of your flesh. It has to be something of the Spirit. And so, yes, believing is a part of salvation, but the question is not, do you have to believe in order to have, to have salvation? The question is, why do you believe? What's the source of your believing? What's the cause of your believing? What's the nature of that believing? And in the flow of Jesus' thought here, the reason that you believe is because you've been born again. The Holy Spirit has blown upon you. Now, he would say that the Holy Spirit, when it talks about the wind blows where it wishes and you don't hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from, so it is with everyone who's born of the Holy Spirit, he takes that to mean that the Spirit can blow on Jews or Gentiles, men or women, slave or free. Uh, the Spirit has the right to do that. But then in that same discussion, this is exactly what Leighton Flowers said. He says that the Spirit blows on whoever first humbles themselves and believes. That's who the Spirit blows on. So the Spirit's going to blow on those who first humble themselves and believe. Now, let's just ask the question, is there anywhere in that text that it gives the condition? One of the things that we have to be very clear with, the Reformed Calvinistic view, in many respects, not all, but in many respects, it's unconditional. There are some unconditional elements. Now, what do I mean by unconditional? There's unconditional election, unconditional effectual calling, unconditional election, unconditional regeneration. What do I mean by unconditional? What I mean by unconditional is that there are no conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to do what he does. You see, the Arminian and the provisionist and, and, and most synergistic systems are conditional God has to see faith. God has to respond to faith. There's a self-generated faith or repentance that comes first, and then once that condition is met, then God, either through foreknowledge, elects the sinner, or then he regenerates the sinner. And so there's the human libertarian free will on the front end that is the cause for God or the impetus for God doing the election or doing the regeneration. But I want you to notice that in these passages of Scripture, these are unconditional issues. God is unilaterally doing the work. The wind blows where it wishes. It doesn't say the wind blows on 
those who seem to have faith first, or the wind blows upon those who humble themselves. That's not what Jesus says there. It says the wind blows where it wishes. And of course, the wind there, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to blow where the Holy Spirit wishes. So the Holy Spirit has a sovereign will to blow upon whom he wants to blow upon. In other words, you can't control the Holy Spirit's power of regeneration. You can't meet a condition in order for the Holy Spirit to blow upon you. You can't humble yourselves, and then the Holy Spirit says, okay, you humble yourselves, I see you humbling yourselves, I'm going to go blow upon you, and I'm going to regenerate you because you first humbled yourself. That's not the argument that Jesus is making. Nowhere in this text is Jesus saying the condition for being born again is that you have to have faith. I I, I challenge you, read verses 3 through 8 of John chapter 3 and see where human action or faith comes into play. Nowhere. God is doing this. God has to cause you to be born again. God has to cause you to be born, born of water and spirit. The spirit has to give you birth. The wind has to blow. So nowhere are there any human conditions that have to be met in order for God to do the work of being or causing you to be born again. Now let's go to another passage of Scripture that they use for, they say that we use as Calvinists for a proof text for irresistible grace, and that's John 5, 21. I'm going to read through 24. They just dealt with John 5, 21, but let me read the whole, let me read it in context here. John 5, 21 through 24. And just by the way, <laughs> just a point of logic of flow John 5 comes after John 3 in the gospel of John what has Jesus already established in John 3 the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in regenerating or causing people to be born again by his sovereign will alone that's already been established so when we get to the next flow of thought in Jesus's teaching we have to accumulate the material that's before to to understand the flow of the entire gospel of john and the issues that have already been brought up in john's material so john 5 21 through 24 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he who does not come in to judgment but has passed from death to life okay we've got this same terminology here the same terminology back up in john 3 it says the wind blows where it wishes Here it says the Son gives life to whom He will. So there's a a sovereignty of the Spirit blowing where He wills to blow, and there's a sovereignty of the Son giving life to whom He will. And so what they'll say, the provisionist will say, is the point of contention is not that the Son gives life to whoever He wants, because they can't argue that point because Jesus, in fact, says it. That's not the issue. They would say the question is, Who does the Son wish to give life? In other words, what's the condition that has to be met in order for the Son to give life to whom He will? 
And they would just make the same argument they made before in John chapter 3. They import libertarian free will into the equation. Their answer is, well, the Son wants to give life to those who have faith, those who humble themselves, those who repent and believe, those who meet that condition, then Jesus gives life to those. That's who he really, who does Jesus really want to give life to? Who does Jesus really want to raise to life? Those whom he sees have faith. Who does the Holy Spirit really want to blow and regenerate? Those who humble themselves and have faith. In other words, they import, with those provisionist lenses, libertarian free will into the text as the condition for God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit doing a unilateral sovereign work. So let's take off the provisionist lenses that see everything through libertarian free will and self-generated faith, and let's look at what the text says, because in these texts, they want to deny the freedom of God to unilaterally do what he wants to do, regardless of whether the sinner meets any condition. And by the way, if you believe in total depravity and total inability, the sinner can't meet the condition. That's the point. If you are dead in sin, if you are spiritually and morally unable to come to faith in Christ, you could never in a million years meet the condition of repentance and faith. You just can't do it. So God has to do that for you. He has to raise you to new life. He has to grant you faith because you could not do it. Now, again, there's faith in the equation, but notice faith comes later. Verse 21, the son gives life to whom he will. Their answer, okay, the Son gives life to those who have faith. Well, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So there is hearing and believing. Yes, you must hear the gospel. You must believe in Jesus to have eternal life. No one comes to faith in Christ. No one has salvation without personally believing in Jesus. That's not the point of contention. The point of contention is not do you have to have faith to be saved. The point of contention is what is the cause, the source, or the nature of that faith? I mean, this is the ultimate issue between Calvinism and other views. What is the nature of saving faith? Is it self-generated? Is it autonomous? Is it libertarian free will? Or is faith a gift of God whom he gives to the elect unilaterally, irresistibly, effectually? So in John 3, you believe, whoever believes, it's because the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. In John 5, you believe because the Son has given you life. Notice the order. The giving of the life, the being born again, the blowing of the Holy Spirit always comes before the believing. That's why we as Calvinists say regeneration precedes faith. It's not a proof text. We're just reading the text and how Jesus presents it. He presents the sovereign work of God first and then the response being the believing. Yes, we believe you have to personally place faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe for you. You're not an automaton or a puppet that's just being acted upon or, or your will is being violated. No, you are a person created in the image of God and you personally have to place your faith in Christ. The reason you do so is because you've been made alive. You've been born again. Again, the question is, are there any conditions that have to be met by the sinner in order for Jesus to grant life or regenerate? Again, read these texts in the order that Jesus presents them, and ask yourself the question. Take off the provisionist lenses. Take off the libertarian free will lenses and ask, is there, have you imported libertarian free will? Have you imported faith? Have you imported self-generated response into the text? Or are you allowing the text to speak for itself? 
Now let's look at the next passage of scripture, and this is a big one. This is Ephesians 2. I'm not going to deal with verses 1 through 3 because basically that does teach spiritual deadness, and I'm not going to interact with Leighton Flowers' view on the metaphor or the idiom of deadness and him going into the book of Revelation and talking about Sardis or the prodigal son. I'm not going to deal with those issues. I'm going to deal with the actual point of contention w- that, he, that he gets to and the whole issue of being made alive. And so I'm going to start in verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." Okay, they're not going to argue that a sinner has to be made alive. That's not the issue because it says right there. <laughs> I mean, they, they can't argue with the text. In verse 4, God made us alive together with Christ. What they argue is, is that being made alive is not arbitrary or unilateral or effectual. In other words, Again, it's the same exact argument they've been making all along. God makes alive those who have faith. Now again, let's ask the question, is there anywhere exegetically, contextually, grammatically, in this passage of Scripture that has faith being the condition for being made alive? It's so uncanny. Paul and Jesus are teaching the same exact things, just using different language, but it's the same order. Yes, faith is involved, believing is involved, but First, in the order, comes the monergistic sovereign work of God. God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Why does God have to make you alive? Because you're dead in trespasses. God has to do it. Is there anywhere in that passage of Scripture that says God made us alive together with Christ when he saw your faith? Or God makes those alive who have faith? Nowhere in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 9, does Paul say faith is the cause, the condition, or the reason of being made alive or being raised. Now you can argue in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I have a whole podcast on that passage of scripture arguing, is faith a gift? And I'm going to give you my answer. Yes, I believe faith is the gift. I believe salvation is a gift. I believe grace is a gift. I believe the whole package is a gift. And I've heard even Leighton Flowers and others says, well, even Calvin himself didn't believe you know, faith was a gift. If you read Calvin carefully and you read the, the whole commentaries of these, of these other Calvinists, they're not denying that faith is a gift, that they would agree with that. And, and so, in other words, faith is a part of salvation, but faith is not the condition for being made alive. Again, take off the provisionist lenses and stop importing libertarian free will into these verses where God is unilaterally or whether he says arbitrary. I don't like the word arbitrarily. When we think of arbitrarily, we think of of, of maybe randomly. God is not acting randomly. God is not acting arbitrarily. Yes, God is acting unilaterally and God is acting unconditionally because he is God and has the freedom to do that. God is sovereign in who he chooses to make alive. 
Again, the assumption is, is we play a part or we can tell God what to do or we can meet a condition or we can self-generate faith. And then once we do that, then God responds to our faith by making us alive. Think about the logic here of what they're saying. You self-generate libertarian free will in responding positively to the gospel appeal and then God responds to your faith by rewarding you with being born again or rewarding you with blowing the spirit in your life to cause the new birth or rewarding you by raising you to new life or rewarding you with being made alive. Now, they may not like the, the terminology I'm using here by rewarding you. They would say, no, God's not rewarding you. All right, let's use a different word. God is responding to your faith. God is responding to your choice. If you don't like the word reward, use the word respond. Either way you look at it, God is contingent upon what you do first. And that's not the order of the scripture. God sovereignly acts and then the response comes because God has produced within you that response. You believe, you have faith because you've been made alive. You have been regenerated. And one of the things that I often hear Leighton Flowers say is that you've got to understand the context of Ephesians. Ephesians is written to the, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's those who have faith. Nobody's denying that these people had faith. Nobody's denying that the author, the author or the audience of, of Paul's book is the faithful in Christ Jesus. Yes, the, the question is not, are they faithful or they had faith? That's not the point of contention. They assume that the faith was self-generated or the faith was something that they had that God responded to. That's just a moniker. That, that's just an introductory address given to the, the, the audience. They're the faithful in Christ Jesus. Yes, they had faith, but why did they have faith? Was faith a gift? Was it because they were chosen to have faith? Now, Let's go to Colossians 2, 11 through 13, because it's a parallel passage of Scripture. And there, and there, is, a, there is a preposition that's, that's used here. I'm going to get into the Greek here, because there's two ways you can look at this. Uh, okay, there, there's two ways you can understand this passage of Scripture. One gives a stronger Calvinistic reading. The other one is just not necessarily so. I don't think we can be conclusive. I, I think that you have to be careful uh, when, when it comes down to how you interpret this. But let's read Colossians 2, 11 through 13, because it's very similar to Ephesians, where, where Paul says, God made you alive. Okay, this is a different way of Paul saying it, but it's the same concept. Okay? But again, I want you to pay attention to the order. I, pay, I want you to pay attention to the verbs used. I want you to pay attention to who's doing the action and the flow of Paul's thought. It's not going to change from everything we've seen. What do we see in John 3? God doing all the action and then faith coming. What do we see in John 5? Jesus raising those whom he wills and then faith coming later as a result. What do we see in Ephesians 2? God being made alive and then faith being the result. So in other words, regeneration, being made alive, being born again comes before the faith. The faith is a gift. All right, let's read Colossians 2, 11 through 13. Let's see the same pattern. In him... Also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. 
Okay, verse 13, you have that same exact wording, being dead in trespasses, God made you alive together with him. Okay, so in this passage of scripture, I want you to notice who's doing almost all of the activity. Who's doing all the action? God. You were circumcised. That's an aorist passive, meaning God was the one that was doing that to you. If it was an active verb, you would have been the chief actor. You'd be doing the, doing the action. But when it's a passive verb, you're the one being acted upon. So God is divinely doing these things to you. You were circumcised. You were raised. That's also in the passive voice. You were dead. Okay, these are all things uh, that, 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 that God, God did, you know, God, that you were dead is not necessarily God doing the action, but it's a description of your condition. But then, aorist active, God made us alive in Christ. Okay, all of the verbs or the actions here are either God doing them or you being dead as a, a state of your unregenerate. Now, there's one human action in this, and that is faith in verse 12. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God through faith okay yes there's an element of faith and they will camp out on this through faith that's the way that's who god chooses to make alive those who have faith now let's just talk about the little preposition dia through through faith we as calvinists don't have a problem with faith being the instrument through which a person saved you are saved through faith that's not a dispute. That's not an argument. The question is, what's the nature of the faith, and why did you have the faith? You see, they would argue that the through faith is the cause of God making you alive. Now, there's, a, there's two ways you can understand this through faith. Okay, Being raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, One of it is to take it as the objective genitive. Okay, this, is, this, this would be translated faith in God's power. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. In other words, it's faith in God's powerful working. That's the objective genitive. Another way you could take it is the subjunctive genitive, meaning that faith in the power of God means that the powerful working of God is what produced the faith. In other words, faith is the gift. So it's either subjective or objective genitive. If subjective, then Paul's saying their faith is the result of God's powerful working in them. God worked that faith in them. If objective, then their faith was exercised in Christ's resurrection, the powerful working of Christ. I, I think you can make a case for either one. Most scholars, I can tell you, probably come down upon the objective. It's more faith in God's powerful working. But even if you take it as uh, objective or subjective, the issue is, is that faith is there. Okay, the question is not, is faith there? Is faith required? Again, the point of contention is what's the nature of the faith? Is the faith a gift? And notice where faith comes. Yes, it's through faith. And yes, you have to have faith. But notice all the things that happened. 
you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were buried. You were raised. You were made alive. All these things God unilaterally did to you, and not because you had faith. God did those to you and gave you the gift of faith, and it was through faith in that that God saved you. Now, one of the things that I've heard Leighton Flower say, he says, let's concede that faith is a gift. Let's just say that faith is a gift in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But then he'll go a second step and say this. Even if faith were a gift, it doesn't have to be effectual or irresistible. He says God could give faith as a gift and then you could squander that gift and not use it. You're responsible to use the gift God gives you. So in other words, God can give you the gift of faith, but you still have to choose whether you're going to use it or not. It's like a birthday gift. God can give you the birthday gift of faith. You can choose whether to open it or, or let it sit there. You have to use it. And then he makes an analogy. He says something like, aren't natural talents like singing a gift from God? And, and, and a person who has a natural gift of singing and that person goes on to, to sing crass songs or, or with, with really bad lyrics, um, they're, they're squandering that gift that God gave them, and they're not using it. He says it's the same thing with the gift of faith. God can give it to you, and you can choose not to use the gift. Okay, the problem with that analogy, the problem with that issue, is a couple of things. Number one, We've seen all throughout these passages of Scripture that God monergistically, sovereignly grants, makes alive, does all these workings unilaterally and unconditionally. So you have to import this whole idea of you, you can squander this faith because e even then you have libertarian free will to, to squander a gift that God gives you. It, it's not an effectual giving. But let's ask the other question. Is God obligated to give the gift of grace? Cannot it be withheld? And so let's just talk about the nature of grace for a moment because this is a huge difference between the Reformed view of grace and the provisionist view of grace. Is grace something that God merely offers to the sinner as a gift that can be refused or accepted? Is it just an offer? I'm going to offer you a gift, but you can choose to accept it or reject it. Is grace merely a gift or an offer or a provision that can be utilized or not? That's the provisionist view. Grace is merely an offer. God offers the gift. You choose to do with what you want to with the gift, even if it's the gift of faith. In the Reformed understanding and the way we understand Scripture is that grace is not an offer that can be refused, but it's an unconditional act of God who chooses to actually confer or grant grace. It, it's God's sovereign choice to actually give grace, and that grace is given effectually. God chooses to make alive. The Holy Spirit chooses to blow where he wishes. The Son chooses to give life to whom he will. It's not merely the Holy Spirit blows as an offer to those that want to receive the blowing. The Holy Spirit will cause those who want to be born again 
merely to those who, who, who have the offer of being born again, but they can choose to reject it. Or those who are dead in sins and trespasses, the offer is made to be made alive. You can choose whether you want to be made alive or not. Again, I challenge you, anywhere in these passages of Scripture, see if those issues are there. Now, one last passage of Scripture, which I found very, very interesting. John 6, 37 through 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay, all that the Father gives me. Now, how do we understand this? We've done tons of, of podcasts on this. We believe this is sovereign election. This is the covenant of redemption. All that the Father gives Jesus will come to him. We're talking about unconditional election. We're talking about election of individuals before the foundation of the world. The condition for the coming is that God already gave them to Jesus. In other words, the election, the giving comes before the coming. And so this is the first time I've ever heard this from Leighton Flowers and others. Why does the Father give these people to Jesus? So again, they can't argue that the Father gives people to Jesus, but they, they give a reason, okay? And it's the same reason that we've been seeing all along. Why? Those who were already having faith. Not necessarily faith in Christ, but they were God-fears like Cornelius or Lydia. Those who already had, quote-unquote, faith in God, those were the ones that the Father gave to Jesus. To the faithful God-fearers, God gave them to Jesus because they were already predisposed to believe. And again, let's ask the question, the same question we're asking. Show us in the text where faith, self-generated, is the condition or the cause of God doing his action. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, is there a condition there for God giving these people to the Son? Does anywhere in the text say God gives those who already have faith? Or God gives those who are already predisposed? No. It's, again, it's a provisionist lens that reads in libertarian free will into all these passages, basically saying that faith is just assumed to be self-generated, and that's the ultimate reason why God does anything He does. Yes, we know what God's will is. God's will is to elect those whom have faith. God's will is to regenerate those whom have faith. God elects to make alive those who humble themselves. In other words, it's always starting with the human self-generated faith, and then God responds to that by doing His work. So it's not necessarily monergistic. They would argue it is, but it's, it's contingent God is contingently, quote-unquote, sovereign based upon the condition being met that he sees. He has to see somebody humbling themselves. If somebody's already humbling themselves, if somebody's already believing, if someone's already trusting in Christ, then God does his work in response to that. And again, this is not the order of how the Bible teaches things. It goes back to the golden chain of redemption. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Golden chain of redemption. It's the same, God does the same action for all those within the chain. In other words, the chain can't be broken. And again, are there any conditions for those whom he predestines? No. Does God say, I'm going to predestine those who have faith? Are there any conditions for those whom he calls? God's going to call those he sees have faith. Those whom he justified, those whom he glorified. Now, why are you justified? 
you are justified through faith. It's not your faith that justifies you. It's Christ who justifies you. But justification, that being declared not guilty, comes through faith. And why did you have that faith? Because you were called. Why were you called? Because you were predestined. So only those predestined will be effectually called, and only those who are called will believe and be justified. Not everyone believes. Not everyone's justified. Why? Why does not everyone believe? Is it libertarian free will? No, not everyone believes because not everyone's been effectually called and may, been made alive and given the gift of faith. Why not? Why is not everyone called and given the gift of faith? Because not everyone's been predestined. You see, this is why both election, regeneration, calling are unconditional. There are no conditions a sinner has to meet in order for God to predestine them, in order for God to call them, in order for God to regenerate them. God does so because of the good pleasure of His sovereign will alone. And what they would say in response to that, the provisionist? Yeah, we agree with you. It's because of God's sovereign will alone. But we know what God's sovereign will is. We know what God's good pleasure is. God's good pleasure is to save those, to elect those, to regenerate those who believe. So as, again, it, it goes back to that fundamental argument. Libertarian, self-generated faith comes first, and then God responds, either by causing you to be born again, giving you life, making you alive, calling you. All of the things that God does, He does in response to your faith. And I just want to ask you, exegetically, grammatically, contextually, we've just looked at a few passages of Scripture. What's the order that Jesus teaches? What's the order that Paul teaches? God alone does His sovereign work, and as a result of God's sovereign work, the faith comes as a result. It's a gift. Faith is not the cause of election. Faith is not the cause of regeneration. Faith is the result that comes because God first has done His unconditional, irresistible work in the life of a sinner who, by the way, is dead in sin and can never do these things or meet these conditions in a million years. If, 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 if we could meet the conditions of having faith in order for God to do these things, then, quote-unquote, God would be waiting a long time because we would never come around to doing it. Left to ourselves, we can never meet the conditions. And so hopefully this has been a helpful understanding of their argumentation of importing the provisionist lenses of libertarian free will into all these verses, reversing the order of how God does things, importing faith as the cause of all these things. Again, I challenge you, go back and read these passages of Scripture on your own. Be a good Berean. Look at the, the grammar. Look at the wording. Look at what God alone does. Look at what, who's the one that's doing the action, who's being acted upon, and, and see if these concepts that the provisionists hold to are in the text or if they import them into the text because they have provisionist lenses on that they've been using to read the scriptures from this libertarian free will viewpoint where God does not have a sovereign decree, but that God responds to our faith first. Well, again, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope this has been a helpful podcast to kind of delineate the differences between Reformed theology and provisionist theology. I would love for you to go to... Um, 
Apple Podcast or any place that you get this um, through your streaming service or however you get this podcast and do a positive review and rating. Please share it on your social media, uh, share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, Instagram, places where you think other people would be helpful. Um, you can go to seancole.net to get all my contact information. I'd love for you to email me or let me know of a future episode that you'd love to, to have me address a topic. And so thank you for being a faithful listener. May God bless you. May God cause his face to shine upon you. And will we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus?